Please listen carefully. Welcome back to Utterly Moderate. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're discussing a phenomenon occurring in the United States and a number of countries around the world. The median age of our population is rising. Here to discuss this is political scientist Mark Sockleben. Before we begin, if you'd consider pressing pause, pulling up our show description in Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening on, and take 15 seconds to sign up for the Connors newsletter. Doing this will make sure that all of our podcast episodes and publications go directly to your email immediately upon release. We're hoping to build a big community of listeners just like yourself who want nonpartisan information in civil discourse, and I hope that you'll consider signing up. All right, well, let's get to today's conversation, The Aging of America. Political scientist Mark Sockleben, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Lawrence, for having me. All right. So before we get into some of the details about your research and about some of the topics that we want to cover today, let's first start by telling our audience a little bit about your background. So tell us about your your training, your expertise, what it is that you do as a political scientist. Um, yeah, it's kind of weird. I went to a small um, college in uh, Kentucky called Berea College, which was a uh, is an interesting background, um, which it was founded by abolitionists in the 1850s. And, um, um, you know, I, I mentioned that because uh, I think one of the things I took away from Berea was this kind of uh, missionary uh, aspect that, that the college has and uh, looking for social justice kind of issues, uh, racial equality, uh, specifically uh, what was there. Um, and, in having a really well-rounded liberal arts education, I, I studied lots of things while I was at Berea, not only political science, but, um, you, know, uh, you know, we like to say we were forced to take religion classes, but I, I, I thought they were incredibly interesting and it just wasn't, you know, Christian classes. I, I, I took a lot of Buddhist classes and uh, while I was there because one of the professors I really liked um, was a China specialist and, and, and we looked at that. So when I went to graduate school, I think I was uh, presupposed to look at things like uh, human rights um, issues. Um, in, in my dissertation uh, for my PhD from uh, Miami University was on human rights treaties and how different types of countries either signed up and ratified these treaties or they didn't. Um, and, and so that, that aspect of, you know, looking at what you know what constitutes human rights and who was most likely to to adhere to human rights treaties uh, really opened up some other avenues for me, including um, uh, thinking about what safety and what security meant in the world. And, and so, you know, the my current project that we'll chat about a little bit more today is to, to think about. You know, political science is a discipline. We're heavily focused on war and terrorism. Um, and I really wanted to think about the other issues in life that make, um, that 
threatened people, that uh, harmed economies, harmed, harmed the world, and more specifically, how they're all interrelated. Um, and so, you know, one of the things I don't think we do well as a discipline or as an academy is talk about the cross uh cross effects of different issues and how, you know, how demographics, for example, is related to migration um, and how it's related to the environment as well. Uh, So that's kind of my interest. Um, And, you know, at Shippensburg, I typically am identified as the international guy, uh, myself and and, uh, Cynthia Badaran, which is fine. Uh, And and I enjoy teaching those uh, general survey classes, but I'm more interested in in, in my research and in, in, in discussing the issues that affect everyday people um, and that, you know, to think about while war is awful and, 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 and devastating, um, that war is out of the ordinary and that we should think more about the ordinary things uh, about life as well. I know you as <clears throat> clearly as the international professor, but also as the professor that everyone likes. In fact, uh, one of the reasons, not the only reason, because I actually reached out to you uh, in the past about coming on the show. But uh, one reason that you're on the show right at this moment is because one of our listeners, TJ, uh, actually wrote an email to me and requested you on the show. So you're like a rock star here. (laughs) I have one person and that makes me a rock star. (laughs) Hey, one's more than zero. You know, that's a good setup. So you talking about sort of, you know interconnectedness, um, what motivates you to do research, some of the things that we don't pay attention to is a good jumping off point before we get into the details of the specific topics we want to talk about, mm-hmm. about this book that you have coming out later this year called Tangled Webs, Transnational Issues in World Politics. So I think you've already kind of told us what motivated you to write the book, mm-hmm. um, but tell us a little bit about some of the big issues. I think you've kind of alluded to them, some of the big issues that this book covers. Yeah, you know, this this actually comes out... Um, the idea of this book is really, really old for me. Um, um, it was when I was finishing, finishing up my dissertation on, um, on human rights treaties and thinking about why countries would sign up or not. Um, I was also doing my first classes uh, online and a professor, I was, I was uh, a teaching assistant for a professor and we had a requirement at Miami that we had to teach a couple of classes. And, um, he, uh, he came to me and I knew why he came to me. It came to that section in world politics where he had to say something about the environment. And he just basically said, I want you to teach about the environment. And I knew what that mean. I, I knew him well enough to know, you don't want to talk about the environment. And so I, I started thinking about how can I make the environment relevant for people and, and thinking about, you know, and it's such a big issue and it seems so far away how and, and so I began to think about um, what causes environmental problems and what the ramifications may be. And, um, and so in that lecture, I just kind of laid out, so here's what causes environmental problems. And here are the outcomes of environmental problems, things that we might not think about. I got a good response. Uh, the professor in question, you know, really said, oh, I really like that. Um, and and over the course of my teaching career, I've just kind of built off of that and, and thinking about how these things are interrelated. And, and so when I teach world politics today, I, I do the war things. I, I talk about why wars happen and I talk about security. But um, in, increasingly, I've thought about kind of the 
things that that really affect the world that we typically don't cover on the news and that you know have interrelated aspects. And so you know we do talk about migration a lot, but we never talk about the causes and the effects of migration and how that might be related to environment, uh, climate change, and other environmental degradation, and how it might be related to uh, development issues um, or transnational crime issues. Uh, and so my book is an attempt to kind of put all that together. And it's been really hard to write because when you start thinking about a complex system, we, we tend to compartmentalize. Um, and and in, in fact, I do that in the book. I really compartmentalize. All right, this chapter is about migration. But at the end of that chapter, I try to say, all right, here's how it's connected to these other issues we're discussing in the book, too. Um, and it's been both rewarding and incredibly frustrating at times, too. Well, we will remind listeners uh, as it gets closer, but the book is called Tangled Webs from Mark Sockleib. And so keep an eye out for that. Uh, so let's talk about one of the issues that you have mentioned so far on the show today and also one that you um, explore a lot in the book, which is our aging population. So mm-hmm. in the U.S., like many countries around the world, we are an aging population, which has all sorts of implications for pensions and social security and those sorts of things, which we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. But just uh, very generally, what is this looming demographic crisis that we're faced with? Well, I think, um, you know, maybe the same for you, but when I was taking world politics, my professors were always concerned about overpopulation. And, and I would suggest that that's not, uh, that's not gone away. Uh, there are certain parts of the world that uh, face overpopulation problems. But really, I think what we're looking at down in the future is a increasingly older population and increasingly uh, uh, fewer uh, children being born across the world. Um, and that probably has some ramifications um, uh, down the road that we are already beginning to see. Um, what that means in the world is that increasingly there are uh, fewer babies being born, particularly in wealthy countries. Um, and so we can calculate this. This is uh, not to be too technical, and this isn't particularly technical, but uh, what we should pay attention to is what is referred to as the total fertility rate. And that's simply the number of children on average born to women during their reproductive years. And and so if we think about that, a TFR total fertility rate of 2.1 is replacement. That is uh, a, a female is replacing herself in her partner in the 0.1 is, is that, uh, those number of children who are taking the place of people who don't replace themselves or don't have kids in the next generation. So when we see a TFR of higher than 2.1, that means the population is growing. When it's lower than 2.1, that means the population is declining. In a grand scheme of things, just to give you a sense about how much it's declined worldwide, um, the high water mark of what we've measured um, was in 1960 when the TFR was 5.1. The average woman anywhere in the world had 5.1 children. Um, that would be big by today's standards. Um, right now, or at least 2019, the most recent data, um, the TFR is 2.4 worldwide. Uh, and, and so if we look at this, that, that means that um, we are just above replacement rate 
And we know that the number of children that have been born in previous generations, that number is going to continue to fall. This isn't like we can just turn around tomorrow, start having kids, and that, that, um, that the population is going to you know, start growing again all of a sudden. These are long-term trends that are built in. Where we see the most significant declines in childbirth typically are the richest countries in the world. Um, and so the lowest, um, the lowest TFRs um, in the world is uh, South Korea, which is 0.9. It means the average woman in, in South Korea is not having a baby. Um, in the future. Um, and this portends a huge population decline in, in, in South Korea. But it, but it is not, you know, that's the lowest. Um, and yeah, the, that's the outstanding case, but it's not that far out of the norm. So a country like Italy, 1.3 children, um, Japan, 1.4, Germany and um, in France, somewhere in the range of 1.7 to 1.8 or so. Uh, and so this is a long-term uh, trend um, that is built in. And that means that as the population gets older, that the, there will not be enough people to do the jobs that we want. Um, and the average age of that society is going to increasingly uh, go up. And, and when I talk to students about this, I often ask them to think about Japan, which is kind of the, the, the bellwether that everybody pays attention to, the canary in the coal mine kind of issue. We see villages in rural Japan at which the youngest person in the village is 75, 76 years old, which doesn't sound bad. You know, we have retirement communities, but, but we have a whole village that way. You have some, you have some questions to ask. Who's going to be the doctor? Right, and that who is going to be the police officer? Um, you know, who is going to do you know the heavy lifting work of, of things like clearing snow or building things? You know, and so you know, obviously, it's not that young people are going to go away, but there's this real question about who are going to do these jobs in areas that are increasingly older. And it, that doesn't affect the citywide, right? Or, I mean, uh, or it's not limited to villages. We're looking at countrywide. But the question is, is that as we get older and populations get older, you know, our cognitive abilities um, start to decline. And we could say, okay, we could raise the retirement age. But there's perhaps certain jobs that you know, that we will be concerned about, you know, what is the top level? What is the top age for people to do some of these jobs? And I naturally think of one thing as we all get older, worry about is who's going to be the medical career. You know, it might be okay to go to a doctor at 75. Is it okay for a surgeon at 75 to perform surgery? Right. Um, how about airline pilots, right? Or drivers, uh, things like that. Uh, and, and so these are going to pose challenges to uh, people around the world um, and, and societies and how to figure out how to deal with that uh, becomes a real issue. Yeah. I mean, I don't have these numbers right in front of me. I haven't looked at them too recently, but the last I checked, I think non-Hispanic white was like 1.6 in the U S I think African-American was 1.7. I mean, just really low numbers. Yeah. Um, and, and I, and I think um, one of the, one of the things that we can, if we look deeper into it, um, the wealthier you are, 
oftentimes the lower the TFRs. And, and, and there, I think there's some reasons for that. Um, the primary reason, uh, from my view, is uh, female education, uh, which, you know, female education is highly correlated with the wealth of a society. If you want to be a wealthy society, you should educate your females. But what that also does is it, it means that a female will stay in school longer in order to generate the kind of jobs and kind of wealth that a society wants. So we can look um, at our own students to think about this. Right? So it used to be on average in the United States in the 1950s and 1960s, a, a, um, a woman would have her first child at about 19. Well, if, if a woman goes to college, she postpones that, right? At, at least until 1922, or I'm sorry, not 1920, until 22. Um, and, you know, most of the time people don't finish college and like, oh, I'm going to start a family. They get a career started. They, it's really, they have a real reason to begin to think about uh, going out in the world and, and starting. So, you know, we're po- postponing that. Increasingly, especially females, both in Europe and, and in North America, Females um, typically um, go to graduate school more frequently than males, which you put a master's degree, you're adding one or two years to their education, which you're pushing that further and further back. And then in, in our in our own field, in PhD, add another five years on top of that and getting a career started. And you're looking at many women um, who are not having their first child until they're after 30 well after 30 in many cases. And so uh, three years ago, um, for the first time in U.S. history, the average age for a first child among American women was 30. Um, and, And that means that you know, as we get older, um, not just women, but men too, as we get older, our natural fertility begins to decline as well. So even if you're having children after 30, um, you're not going to have the number of children you would have had in your 20s. And the, and the frequency of childbirth uh, significantly declines for both men and women after 30. It's more readily apparent for women, but um, but certainly it's true for men as well. Um, so, so talk about other causes besides just education. What are some other causes of, of the declines in rich countries? Well, I think many people would talk about... Um, the sheer cost of having children, right? Um, you, you know, and, and so uh, what you kind of point to is, um, uh, is is something that is interesting as well. This is also an urban-rural divide, right? And so having children in urban places means that uh, houses are more expensive. And oftentimes, if you're in a really urban place, um, that means you have a flat or an apartment. You could own a, a condo, but you're really in an apartment size uh, kind of dwelling. Um, and having children means you have to expand that that space. Um, and that's prohibitively expensive in many places, uh, including the United States. And that is not the kind of things to think about child care, uh, the, the cost of child care or the, the cost of education or all the other things that are associated with having children uh, that makes them particularly expensive. So I think cost is one thing um, and, and we, we can see that. Unfortunately, there, there's a part of this that's environmental too, um, and that there are some good there are some good um, studies out there that suggest that um, both 
how we eat affects our fertility rate. Um, and in, in developed societies, we, we eat not always the healthiest as, as we could. Um, you know, obesity affects uh, fertility rate. And we know there's an obesity crisis around the world um, that uh, uh, affects many societies. Um, but there's also um, the amount of plastics, microplastics in, in our environment also has an adverse effect on our fertility and particularly in males. Um, the, the sperm count in males in North America have significantly dropped by some accounts um, by almost 50 percent over the last 40 years. Um, wow. And, and so so there's a lot of things going into this. I, you know, um, you know. The um, I think the education is probably the biggest the, the biggest part of it, but there this is not free from other factors as well. So obviously there are good and there are bad uh, results, consequences, implications of all this. So from your, your perspective, what are the major implications of this big demographic shift? I, I think there, there there are incredible um, implications that that run the gamut. Um, first of all, you know, we know that higher levels of female education lead to a couple of things. And one we've already talked about, that's the wealth of society. Um, typically, uh, a lot of capital accumulation is generated from women working. And, and so higher standard of living across the world for everybody um, it is not just limited to uh, wealthy countries. Um, it is also um, a factor in developing economies. Secondly, very interesting from a political science uh, point of view, that means that women are more in place. And um, when you have women in certain positions, whether they be political or business, those societies tend to be more peaceful, too. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the side benefits of this and, you know, an aging population is also a more peaceful uh, population. One of the things I like to point to is like, OK, so if you have a breakaway movement someplace, right, and your average age is 19, right, that means people are uh, more prone to violence um, as they roll out, right? And you have things like Yemeni or Syrian civil wars. When you have a, a breakaway region or a breakaway region where the average age is much higher, say 30 or so, like Catalonia, you can go have a protest. And then after the protest, you go down and have a coffee rather than go <laughs> break windows in. Right. And so, and so, you know, there's there's some benefits to all of this. You know, I'd like to say we have a perspective. We have some experience. Uh, we're not. We're tired. Yeah, right, right. We're tired. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, I. I like to think I don't really care if my neighbor speaks uh, Spanish or Catalan, right? I, you know, whatever, you know. <laughs> um, so, so there, there's some there's some huge benefits. There's some benefits um, too on our food supply, right? Um, in terms of, you know, if our population is slowing down, and it looks like the population will top off somewhere between 2050 and 2060. 10 billion people on the planet and then a slow decline that's manageable uh and there there there's probably enough food right now although we probably should do a better job at uh, growing healthier food rather than just kind of doing mass food um but that's manageable and, and that's a good side to this right and because as you know my professor's when, when I was an undergrad, I always worried about not having enough food and, and fights over food uh, and mass starvation 
The good thing with this uh, this Takani population is that we're probably like to uh, it's likely to see that food's going to not going to be a problem. Distribution could be better, but there's probably enough food to feed everybody on the planet as well. So I think those are some of the, the good things. The downside is really those questions about who are going to fill certain jobs. Um, and we're already seeing this. Uh, one of my favorite example is Italy. So in Italy, if you were a female um, in the 1950s and you were interested in medical uh, field, you became a nurse. Well, today, you know, if you're a female in Italy, there's nothing to stop you from going to uh, medical school. And we know that, you know, uh, doctors, female doctors particularly, are in high demands in places like Italy and the United States and across Europe and, and Canada as well. Uh, and, and so there, there's, a, there's an incentive for that. But what that means is that there's a severe lack or, or a severe shortage of nursing around the world, uh, particularly in places like Italy and in many places in the United States as well, because careers that are open to females that were uh, in the open to females beginning with a mass um, you know, higher education for women, um, they've migrated there because Wait, make more money, more autonomy as a doctor than you are as a nurse. Um, but in reality, as the son of a nurse, I know who does the works in the hospital, who actually provides the health care in the hospital. And those are nurses. Um, and we're seeing a severe lack of nursing um, programs and, and, and people, not just women, but men and women going into nursing career. Uh, and it's vital. And if it is true, we're all getting older. Well, that means that we're going to rely more and more on nursing, not just doctors. Um, and that's a big concern. And how we manage that is going to be a big issue in the future as well. Another concern are uh, things you mentioned like pensions, the Social Security system. So um, the Social Security program, for instance, in the U.S. relies upon current workers paying into the system for current retirees. Mm -hmm. and. It used to be the case that a big surplus was generated because there were more workers than there were retirees. Well, those numbers are changing, right? Mm -hmm. So that workers can't really support retirees. And so talk a little bit about its strain on social services, on taxes, on um, pensions, those sorts of things. Yeah. How, how we manage all this, um, uh, you know, I don't have a lot of um, good suggestions for, um, uh, but we do know that Social Security, for example, when it was introduced in the United States in the 1930s, it was based upon a premise of 12 workers for every retiree or for every person collecting Social Security. We're down to about four or five at this point, um, and that makes it really difficult, and figuring out how to uh, do that is really big. And this is um, this is across the world uh, on this, and you know, again, uh, if I can refer back to Japan, uh, what we call the potential support ratio, which is the number of workers you need to support a retiree. Um, in Japan, that's as low as about 2.1 workers for every retiree. Wow. Um, and, and so how we do this, how we calculate this, uh, that is going to be a really big uh, issue moving forward. I would encourage all of our listeners to go back and listen to our episode with Kathleen Romig from last year where we talked about Social Security. She's a great expert from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And she helped us think through what's wrong with the program and some of the really easy fixes that we could put into place to make sure that it's sustainable for the future. So what she explained was basically that 
if we do nothing at all to fix the program, just leave it as it is, that benefits will actually continue to flow. Every two weeks, there's an infusion of money from payroll taxes that pays for the benefits of current beneficiaries. And as long as people are working, they'll be funding. The problem is just that around, I think, 2034 or so, um, because of falling fertility rates, the program will start paying out around 76% of promised benefits. So not ideal, but if we do nothing, that's what happens. It doesn't go broke. It just pays less than what was promised. But as she explained, we can get it back to 100%. And the fix is pretty straightforward and pretty manageable. Um, She said, quote, it's going to need some tweaks in order to be sustainably financed over the long term. But the fundamental structure is sound, end quote. She suggested that a slight increase in the payroll tax, so maybe increasing it from 6.2 to somewhere around 7% uh, for both employees and for employers um, would do the trick along with removing the cap on taxable earnings, which I believe is somewhere uh, around $142,000 or so. Um, So anyway, so if you go back and, and take a listen to that episode, it should help you rest a little easier about the program. Uh, but let's move on. So, uh, Mark, in your in your forthcoming book, you don't just talk about aging populations, but also gender imbalances in mm-hmm. some countries. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So um, policies in the past, particularly in East Asia, um, have been the concern about overpopulation has led to some very unfortunate um, policies being implemented. Um, and that has been. Uh, mass sterilization, for example, violation of human rights. Um, and then those are particularly have been targeting um, minority populations. But, but in, in places like China, for example, famously for its one-child policy, which is no longer in effect, and, and I should mention here, too, that it was widely supported amongst the Chinese population as a necessary thing to curb population growth in China in the 1970s and 80s. But it has an unfortunate consequence, and that is that um, there's a preference in East Asian society for males because it's the male's duty to take care of his parents. And when in a traditional uh, Asian society, a male gets married to a woman, a woman leaves her family to take help take care of her husband's parents. That's all good if you have a relatively equal number of males and females. But if you are a family who does not have a male child, the concern is, is that there's nobody to take care of you. When China institutes this policy, which is really a tax structure that makes having a second child really unaffordable for most Chinese uh, uh, people, which is no longer in effect, but, uh, but, but the, the problems are built in already. Um, that means that if a if a uh, family doesn't have a male child, um, they look for ways in which they can have a male child. And that often meant putting females up for adoption in China. Um, and, um, you know, in certain uh, China has made it illegal as, as um, increasingly uh modern medicine came to China, they made it illegal to sex a child. So you would not know what, uh, what child you were having before the birth, uh, to try to prevent anybody from terminating present 
uh, pregnancies early. So, uh, but nonetheless, we, there's a significant uh, gender imbalance. So, for children born in China in 2005, there ha- there are six males for every five females, uh, which means that there are millions, tens of millions more males than females. And it's not quite as bad, but almost as bad in India as well, where the same kind of uh, demographics are, are, are put into uh, the society as well. And so what we're seeing in East Asia particularly is a high level of males who will never have what we might call a traditional Chinese family or typical Asian family in which their hopes of ever being married are close to zero. Um, and this is particularly true amongst poor populations, uh, among ethnic minorities, um, that they can find it very difficult to find a female partner to, um, to have a family with. Well, Mark Sockleib and I could talk to you forever and you're right down the hall from me. So I do stop in and talk to you quite often, but, uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Uh, thank, thanks so much, Lawrence. I really appreciate the time. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you. Till we meet again trails to you until we meet again happy trails to you keep smiling until then who cares about the clouds when we're together just sing the song and bring the sunny weather happy trails to you Goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.